Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, or um, if you see one of those blue Bibles near you on the ground, let me encourage you to pick one of those up and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read the second part of that chapter this morning as we uh, continue the series that we've been in that we'll be uh, wrapping up next week called Let's Eat, looking at everything the Bible has to say about food. And um, that might strike you as, as a little bit strange of a, uh, of a series to be looking at, but I, I think you'll understand a little bit more about why we're doing that this morning. Um, this, this passage we're about to read, um, uh, and, and even this sermon this morning, I think is going to be a little bit more teachy than, than is often the case. But um, one of the first things you're going to notice uh, about this passage is that when the Apostle Paul begins to speak here, there is something that he is just kind of lit up about. And so let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Paul says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you do, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give more directions when I come. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Oh God, would you give us um, understanding this morning as we give our attention to your word. 
And God, as we read this passage, some of these words are probably very familiar to us, and some of them um, are very alarming to us. And I pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds, that we would be uh, receptive to your word, that your spirit would help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. There's often considerable power, isn't there, in a final meal together. I remember many years ago, um, my wife and I and two young kids at the time were moving out of state. And I'll never forget the last meal that we had with family and friends before we left. We, We ate at the Coyote Grill in Laguna Beach. And, uh... And then we left, and we drove um, several hundred miles to our new home. And I remember that feeling of, of kind of wanting to linger and wanting the meal with you know, family, um, pretty much all of our close family being there, and wanting it to just last and go on, and kind of wanting to linger, but also having this, this driving sense that we actually needed to get going. Um, a last meal... You, you might think of the term the la- final meal it, it brings to mind the, you know, the, the condemned prisoner and there's this kind of lore I think around this idea of, of a final meal and according to Google it's actually true in, at least in most states and most countries a, a, a condemned prisoner is given a final meal on the last night of his life uh, this morning we are looking uh, at the instructions the apostle Paul gives around the, the final meal or the, the Lord's Supper, the last supper of Jesus. Um, in, night, uh, sorry, right, in 1494, Leonardo da Vinci was commissioned to uh, create a painting that became uh, one of the most famous of his works and in fact one of the most famous paintings in the world. Uh, there was a monastery in Milan, Italy that was redecorating. <laughs> And they hired this painter, Leonardo da Vinci, to create a painting in their dining room. It's a massive, I think it's like 15 by 20 feet painting of the Last Supper. And uh, da Vinci said that his goal was to capture the moment at the Last Supper of Jesus, the moment right after Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me. And so um, you've probably seen, you know, have uh, some mental image of this painting where it's this long table and Jesus is right in the middle. And on one side of Jesus is Judas. And he's almost getting up to leave as Jesus has just said, one of you will betray me. And, uh, and he's got a bag, a money purse in his hand. And on the other side of Jesus is Peter. And he's got a look of anger on his face and he's pulling out this this small knife as if to say, Jesus, just tell me which one it is and I'll, I'll take care of them right here. And the look on the face of the rest of the disciples is basically just confusion over what Jesus is saying, that he is about to be betrayed. And they begin to argue among themselves. In this series, Let's Eat, we've been looking at how God uses food and our hunger to lead us to himself and to show us that he is the one who provides for us, but that he is the one who ultimately satisfies us. 
And um, we've seen that God sends us into the world once he has satisfied us with himself. He sends us into the world to invite others into the feast of knowing God through the practice of hospitality. And this morning we come to what is in many ways, I think, the heart of the matter in this series, the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist as um, different names by which this meal is all, uh, are all known. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four biblical accounts of the life of Jesus uh, record this Last Supper of Jesus when he, when he institutes communion or the Lord's Supper. And he tells us to celebrate it in remembrance of him until he comes again. So all four Gospels record that. But we're looking at what Paul says about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, some of us uh, who are, some people in our church are, are doing this community Bible reading plan together. And so maybe a month or three weeks ago, we were reading through 1 Corinthians if you've ever read through 1 Corinthians, you've been struck by just what a messed up church this, this place was. And it's so encouraging to me to see um, this messed up church that Paul addresses and that receives the very word of God. But it's really, I think, to our game that this church was so strange and so messed up. Because if they hadn't been so messed up, Paul would never have been inspired by God to write these words of correction and instruction to them. And we wouldn't have these instructions about the Lord's Supper. And so in order to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to see a little bit about what the context was in Corinth. And um, what was happening in Corinth, you have to remember that a Sunday in the Roman world was not a day off work. It was a Sunday. It was a day just like any other day of the week. And so the church would gather maybe before work or maybe after work, and they didn't gather in a dedicated building or probably even a school. They would have gathered in the home of someone who was a member of the church in Corinth. Probably in the home of a, of a wealthier person because they would have had a larger house. And typically, um, there would be a dining room where where people would gather, and there, that would seat maybe 10 or 12 people, and the rest of the church would kind of spill out into the courtyard. And um, some of this is, is kind of a speculation, hopefully an educated guess, um, but it makes sense that the, the wealthier people who are members of the church in Corinth would arrive earlier and would probably get the better seats at church. And the poor people who worked longer would show up later. And they would be the people who were spilling out into, uh, into the courtyard. And so what's happening here is that um, the wealthy people are arriving earlier and getting the good seats. And the, and the poor people are getting the leftovers. And that resulted in a situation where in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, there's some people that are being served like elaborate portions and they're getting like the filet mignon of the Lord's Supper and they're getting a full tall glass of wine. And Paul's saying, what is going on here? Some of you are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and others of you aren't getting anything at all. Some people were eating and then they would just take off before the rest of the church was served. And Paul says to them, you are making a mockery of this whole thing. You're making a mockery of the Lord's. He's saying it's not even the Lord's Supper at this point. You've, you've so kind of defiled this. What is going on with you? And Paul says that the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper is to demonstrate our unity. 
that though there are people, uh, there have always been members of the church from various socioeconomic backgrounds and various racial backgrounds and various economic backgrounds and various, um, you know, with, with all of our opinions and preferences on what makes some people great and what makes some people more or less valuable. And the Lord's Supper is kind of the great equalizer where we all come empty-handed to Jesus, bringing nothing of our own, and Jesus feeds us. He invites us to feast with him at his table. The Lord's Supper is about unity. It's about, uh, it's about community. It's about communion. It's about uni- uh, union with God, but also union with each other. And that's why as a church, we kind of have the practice of coming forward, in, not just as individuals, but in groups and taking the Lord's Supper together. It's about union with God, but also with other people. Okay, so that's a lot of the background of what kind of what's going on in this church and why Paul is um, talking the way he is here. Now, I don't know how that lands with you, but I, I think our initial impression would be to say, okay, well, that's interesting, but that does not really apply uh, to the way that modern Christians um, approach the Lord's Supper. But I think that there is a sense in which we approach the Lord's Supper um, where sort of the heart behind it is, is that same thing, although the external manifestation of it looks different. Does that make sense? What, what I mean is this, that modern-day Christians have often made the Lord's Supper kind of this private experience about my religious feeling and my devotion and what I kind of experience as I take the Lord's Supper. And so we kind of have this, like, it's all about me and Jesus, and I need to kind of maybe work myself into this spiritual, uh, emotional state as I take communion. And so we are making it about ourselves when it's really about our union with Jesus and his people. And as Paul gives instruction to the church in Corinth, what I want us to see is that celebrating the Lord's Supper is not so much about our individual expression or kind of our personal devotion. It is that, but sort of after what it's actually about, because the Lord's Supper is about a, it's a meal of unity. It's about our union with Jesus, and it's about our union with other believers. It is a powerful statement of unity that in the taking of communion, in the very act of eating the bread and drinking the wine together, it binds us together as God's people and to God himself. And so to help you see this, I just want to, there's kind of two words that I think stand out from this passage as Paul is talking about. He's giving all this correction to the church in Corinth, but there are two words that he uses to describe what communion is. And they are the words remember and proclaim. And so those are the two kind of headings that I want to look at this passage under this morning. And let me just warn you, if you're going to get nervous about this, that I'm going to spend probably 90% of the time on remember, okay, on the first point. So um, first, remember, Paul says in verse 23 and following, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we eat the bread, we drink the wine, we do so to remember. And to fully appreciate what's going on here, we have to do some more background. Um, We have to understand what was going on the night on which Jesus was betrayed. Uh, The night on which Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered together with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And um, the Passover had massive, massive significance for the Jewish people. Um, the, 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 The best way to kind of think about the importance of the Passover for the Israelites might be to think about, like, take the Boston Tea Party or like Paul Revere's ride or some, one of these iconic, no, Washington crossing the Delaware, these kind of iconic moments in the, the founding of the United States of America and combine that with Thanksgiving, okay? It was, it was about the identity of God's people. It was, it was really like the, the formation, um, it goes back to the kind of formation of God's people as God brings his people out of slavery in, in Egypt, in the Old Testament. And yet it was a meal that they celebrated every single year. The Passover was referring back to the time when God brought Israel out of Egypt. God's people in the Old Testament, at the, at the end of the book of, uh, of Genesis, we see God's people, a family of, of about 70 people, go down to Egypt to escape a famine. And when the book of Exodus opens, um, 400 years have gone by. And this family of 70 has grown into a nation of, we don't know exactly how many people, but hundreds of thousands of people. And they have been enslaved by the Egyptians. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh will not let the people go. And so God sends a series of plagues on Egypt. And Pharaoh still will not let the people go. And so finally in the 10th plague, God sends the angel of death. And, uh, and what's happening when God sends the angel of death to Egypt is that um, on a sort of a mini scale, the judgment day, which is in the future and which sort of all human cultures seem to have this sense that someday something will happen and you will get what's coming to you. <laughs> um, and it's in the Bible. God brings the judgment day from the future into the present. Now, not our present. You understand what I'm saying? Into, into Egypt. And, um, and God, uh, God, God is going to weigh, um, God in his divine justice is going to weigh the deeds of every person. And uh, the, the problem with, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that if God sends the angel of death Uh, into the homes and households of the Egyptians, um, the Israelites, God's people who live in the same land, in the same country, they are also uh, going to be found wanting. And uh, so the angel of death visits Egypt. um, He is not only going to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians, he is going to kill the firstborn son of the Israelites as well. And so how do they survive? Well, God tells his people to take a lamb and they slay the lamb and God tells his people to eat a feast. And uh, he says to take some of the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorposts, on the sides and on the top of the door of their home. And when the angel of death comes and sees the blood of the lamb, 
and the family is taking shelter under the blood of the lamb, that the angel of death would pass over that house. And uh, the lamb would be their substitute. And so this is how God saves his people and brought them out of slavery. And when they come out of Egypt, um, in Exodus 12, Moses says that this day, the Passover, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. He says, do this forever. Keep it. Don't change it. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed and the night that he institutes the Lord's Supper, it was a Passover and he was gathered there with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And um, all Jewish people knew how Passover goes because Moses told them, do this forever, don't change anything. And they'd been doing it for like 1400 years. And then Jesus stands, well, and what would happen every, every, um, every year at the Passover is that um, the one who is provide, presiding over the Passover would take bread and he would hold it up and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. For 1,400 years. Uh, I mean, you know, if I was to say, even in this room or especially in this room, uh, please stand, take off your hats, ready, begin. You all know the words that are coming next, the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And so when Jesus holds up the bread and he says, this is my body, this is the bread of my affliction that is broken for you. I mean, think about the power and the significance of Jesus taking those words and yet changing them. Um, it would have been incredibly... He's making changes to the Passover. Um, it, it'd be incredibly audacious. Um, but he said, this is the bread of my affliction that is broken for you, not our affliction, not the affliction of our ancestors. It's going to be in my body that the affliction uh, will be born. In the Gospels, when we read the account of the Lord's Supper, uh, you see at the table there is bread and there is wine, and yet there is one thing that is conspicuously absent from the table, and there is no mention of the lamb at the Lord's Supper on that night. And so the question, how can you have the Lord's Supper without the lamb? You know, um, every like four or five years, I don't know if this happens in your family, when my, my kind of parents and extended family are making plans for Thanksgiving. Like every four or five years, my mom says that we're going to have ham for Thanksgiving. And we all like rise up in arms and we're like, you can't, we're having turkey. You cannot change it. Okay. They're having the Lord's Supper, but there's no lamb there. How can it be the Lord's Supper without the lamb? Well, we see throughout the Old Testament, these hints that, um, and if you think about it, it, it makes complete sense. How does a fuzzy little lamb remove the sins of anyone? No matter how cute it may be, how does a lamb pay for all the injustice in our world? How does it pay for the hate, the cruelty, the shame, the guilt, the things that we do that we would fear uh, to even mention or call to mind, let alone tell to anyone else? How does a lamb, how does the blood of a little lamb satisfy divine justice? And of course, the answer is that it can't. And so on the night that he was betrayed, the Passover that God's people have celebrated forever 
finds its fulfillment. Jesus fulfills the Passover by showing us its true meaning. And so there was no lamb at the Last Supper because Jesus is saying, I am the main course. I am the one. It's in my broken body that I will bear your affliction. I am the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And what Jesus is saying is that everything in the scriptures has been leading to this one moment. Everything in human history has been coming to this night. And every sin, every betrayal, he is going to pay for it. Jesus is going to give up his life so that the angel of death will pass over you. And so as we take the bread and the wine, we take it in remembrance. We take it in remembrance of Jesus. His body broken, his blood shed. As we take the bread and the wine, there is a direct connection between what happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and what is happening now in our own lives. And so that's part of what it means to remember. Um, You can't remember that if you don't actually know the story, the, the background, the detail, the history. We have to understand that history in order to remember. But in some ways, I just said all of that in order to say this. We have a really thin relationship with the word remember. Because as a culture, we think when we use the word remember, we think the opposite of remembering is forgetting. And um, we think that remembering has something to do with just kind of like cognitively remembering information. And that maybe we've, we've just let it slip our mind. Or like one of my sons is in third grade and he's learning his multiplication tables. And so we're drilling him. Three times three is nine. Three times four is 12. Three times five is 15. You know, over and over again. And then he goes and takes the tests and he, he either remembers or he forgets, right? Um, there's that information and it does it stick or does it not stick? Um, and of course, that's like, it's not a wrong way to use the word Remember, but it's way too thin of a, of a way to use the word remember because in the Bible, the opposite of the word remember is not forget. The opposite of, uh, the opposite of remember is dismember. Okay? What does it mean to dismember? It means to a member is a body part. Um, a member is a part of your body. And so to be dismembered is to be torn apart to be pulled apart. And so to remember doesn't just mean to recall. It means to put back together. It means to graft something into your body. That, that was, it means to sew something back together. It means to make something a part of your being that isn't part of your being by nature. So Jesus is not saying, you know, as you eat this little cracker, and as you drink this like thimble full of wine, try really hard to remember that you're supposed to pretend like this is my body and blood. That's the way that most modern Americans approach the Lord's Supper. He's not saying remember in your head while you take the body and the blood, the bread and the wine. Now, what he's saying is, do this in remembrance of me. And what, he, what, what that means is that he's saying, in the very act of eating the bread and drinking the wine, you are actually being put back together. You are being remembered. 
It's not about you recalling something. It's in the act of eating that you are being remembered. Okay. If we had been another kind of church, somebody would have just said amen right there. Because that is a huge point. Do you understand that? It's not like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to remember. Why did, what am I remembering exactly? No. He's putting you back together as you're eating. You are being, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I want to I try to apply that to us in two ways. To us as individuals and to us corporately, communally. And so for, first, for you as an individual, what that means is this, that if you are here this morning and you are, uh, if you are, you are discontent, that song we just sang, I Shall Not Want, if you are like me singing that song going, I want all kinds of things, um, or if you are here this morning and um, you are filled with anxiety or you're bitter, you're filled with anger, um, it, it may be because you don't believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again for you. Uh, I mean, that, that's obviously a possibility. But it may be that you do believe it, but you need to remember it. Meaning, it's up here. It's in your head. I know the words, Jesus died for me on the cross, and therefore my sin is forgiven. If you can say, sure, I believe that Jesus is God, that the infinite Lord of the universe became a man, took on my sin, died on the cross again, rose to give me peace with God so that no matter what happens to me in this life, I know that at the end of the day, I am going to live forever with God. But what difference does it make if I don't get to drive a shiny new car or have a little bit bigger home or if my boss continues to snub me or whatever else is going on in your life? What it means is that you believe it, but you haven't really gotten it into you. And you need to eat it. (laughs) You need to swallow it. You need to digest it. You need to get it in you. So how do we remember? Well, we remember, yes, we need to hear the story again. But we need more, don't we? I, I need more than just words that I'm supposed to recall in my head. I need somehow to get the truth, the words of Jesus, into my body We need words that we can eat, and that's what we get in the Lord's Supper. You know, the the strange and fascinating thing is that people and and churches are always trying to, like, come up with kind of cute, original new ways to make people, help people kind of feel or experience the love of God in a different way. But it's right here in the Bible. This tangible, physical way of getting the Lord Jesus into us. God spiritually grafts his grace into us in a way that I think is unique as we actually eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus. Um, gosh, there's so much more to say about that. Read John, read the end of John 6. Um, if you're going, what? You're saying actually, yes, actually, Jesus promises that when we actually eat his body and blood, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not just this cognitive thing that we're doing, that somehow he meets us in the Lord's Supper, that he is spiritually present in the elements and he strengthens our faith and grafts what we believe to be true into the rest of our lives. 
Okay, that's us as individuals, but what about us as a church? Well, are you beginning to maybe see, in a way, why we make such a big deal of actually physically showing up at church with regularity? Or maybe another way to say this is is something like this. You cannot be a Christian on the internet. I mean, you're... To be a Christian, you need a body. Christianity is a faith that involves having a body. And listening to a podcast, or even, we don't do this, but like watching a live stream right now of the same service would not have the same impact in your life as actually physically being here and physically eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus together. Because Christianity requires your body. In order to be remembered, you've got to be physically present. You've got to be a body to eat and to drink something, right? It's not just get it into your head that you're supposed to, and so it doesn't really matter if you actually do it. You've got to physically actually eat and drink the body to be a body and blood to be sewn back together. We're not just brains on sticks. And so in order for your body to be remembered, you've got to be present in the body. But also, also what this means uh, for us is this. You have to see this. Where is the body of Jesus physically present on earth today? I mean, I just said at the beginning of the service, it's Ascension Sunday. Jesus in his body went up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the God who has no body, which... Try to get your mind around that one. Where is the body of Jesus on earth? It's us. It's his church. It's his people globally, worldwide, who confess his name. And it's every local expression of the church. And so when we say, listen, I get it. Like, life is busy. I understand But when we say, ah, gosh, I just think I'm going to sleep in tonight, or I'm going to sleep in this morning, I'm not going to go to church, or um, you are dismembering the body of Jesus. You are taking a part of the body of Christ and pulling yourself out. You are, be like, ripping your arm off. (laughs) And so I'm, I guess this kind of cuts both ways. This is probably both like encouragement and a little bit of conviction for some of us, right? But when you say it's not that important for me to be physically present in worship with the people of God, you are taking yourself and ripping yourself out of the body of Christ. And you need us and we need you. Uh, There's this thing that happens frequently, uh, I, I don't know, occasionally to me, um, and it's this, that, that, you know, there's a meeting, there's some gathering of people, what, whatever it is that I have kind of called together. And somebody will send the meeting starting and somebody will text me and say, I'm running late. Just go ahead and start without me. And I often want to say, I already know what I'm about to say. The whole point of having this meeting is because what I don't know is what's going to happen after I say what I'm about to say. I don't know how you're going to, we're going to encourage each other or how you're going to correct me or how all of our mess is going to come out. And through the miracle of the body of Christ, God is going to do something greater through us because we were actually here physically together. You need us. We need you. We need you on Sunday morning. We need you in community groups. We need you when we serve our neighborhood and you need us. I get it. Life 
is busy, but you cannot get this digitally. You cannot get it digitally. We've been talking about this in our community group. Sometimes when I see a neighbor, it's a lot easier to just wave and pull into the garage. But the times when I stop and get out of the car and have a conversation and spend the time, I never regret it. I never say, well, that was a waste of time. And get, I, I get that Sunday for many of us is the one day of the week when you can sleep in. I get it. But the times you get up and get to church, you never turn around and regret it. As we celebrate Jesus, who is torn apart for our sake, we are made into our whole selves. That's what remembering is all about. Okay, I'm running out of time. I'm going to try to cut the rest of this short. Uh, Secondly, proclaim. Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? There's going to be a feast. There's going to be a party. We're going to... We're going to look more at this next week as we finish this series. But in Revelation 21, um, this is what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. The Apostle John, who saw this vision, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? In summary, there will be a feast. There will be a party where you will be satisfied. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. I mean, can I say this? Like, you will be satisfied. Food is so frustrating because I love it so much. And yet I eat it and I'm either like, feel awful afterwards or I don't ever get like, is anybody with me on this? Like, you will be satisfied. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back is you'll be full. And when you take communion, and when we take communion in just a minute, it's like the order for that coming feast that is just there to kind of whet your appetite. It's not a lot of food. Why? Because it's an hors d'oeuvre to say, this will one day finally satisfy you. And Paul is saying this that whenever you eat the bread and you drink the cup, it is a proclamation. Now, what does that mean? Now, the word proclamation, it means to announce something loudly or publicly or officially. And again, like you could hear that and be like, is he saying that when we take communion, we should get so excited that we like run out of here and we shout about how great Jesus is? Well, no. I mean, you might do that, but you probably won't, right? Um, What he's saying is that the actual act of people that would have nothing to do with each other if the gospel weren't true, coming together and celebrating communion is itself a proclamation. And 
the best illustration of this I can think of is you all know that a couple weeks ago the president of South Korea and the dictator from North Korea met together for the first time. And they went to the demilitarized zone and shook hands. And they both crossed over the border into each other's company, country. And then they went and they planted a tree. And then they signed a declaration. And then they had a meal together. And their wives were there. And of course, there's a news media telling us what's happened. But think of what I want you to see is this. The fact of them meeting together is a proclamation that something is going on. And that is exactly what's happening when we come and take the Lord's Supper. It's not that we like are saying something as it's the act of taking the Lord's Supper together is itself a proclamation. It's declaring to ourselves, it's declaring to God, and it's declaring to the world around us that something has changed. That parties who were formerly enemies are eating together. It's a miracle. There's a meeting taking place. God is meeting with us, and we are meeting with each other. This is the Lord's Supper. He invites those who have put, his trust, put, put their trust in Jesus and have been baptized into the body, the church, to come and to feast on him. And so if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus, then this meal isn't for you. It's not about Christians saying they're superior and you're inferior. In fact, the only way to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way is just to believe that you are worthy of it all on your own. And so if you have questions about that, I would love to, to talk with you further. Uh, you can come and talk to me. You can, uh, at resoc.life, you can click on the contact thing and send me an email. I would love to talk with you further about that. Similarly, if you have never been baptized, or if you um, have kids who have been baptized but have never professed their faith in Jesus, or if you have um, kids who have professed faith in Jesus but have not yet been baptized, I would encourage you to not come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Paul, at the end of this passage, gives some of the like, harshest warnings, like most kind of eye-opening warnings um, about e- against eating or drinking without discerning the body. And what that means is rushing in to celebrate for ourselves without an awareness of what God is doing in the church. And so in no way am I saying this to keep anyone away from the Lord's Supper. I want you to feast. I want you to remember. I want you to proclaim. But we want to take uh, the Bible at face value. We want to take it seriously. And so if you're a person who is saying, I believe in Jesus and I've never been baptized, I would love to talk with you. And like, I will baptize you next Sunday if, you know, I mean, if that's appropriate. <laughs> um, this is not about keeping anyone away from the Lord's Supper. It's simply about following Jesus' words and Paul's words here and taking them seriously. This is a feast. Uh, The Lord's Supper is not about my personal experience, my individual devotion, so much as it is this statement where we, in the act of eating together, are put back together. 
and we proclaim to ourselves, to God, and to all who would look on us that we are united in Christ, that Jesus has done everything to make us his own. Enemies are coming together. God, who was once hostile to us, is now feasting with us. This is about looking at Jesus and not proclaiming that we are worthy, but that he is the one who is worthy. And so we celebrated his table together. We pray with me? Jesus, thank you for uh, the way that you give yourself to us. Thank you that you were willing to be torn apart in order to make us whole. Jesus, we confess that, that we are not worthy to celebrate this supper. And so we come to you with open hands, bringing only our guilt and sin, and crying out to you that you would heal us, that you would forgive us, that you would put us back together, that you would graft faith into us because we don't have the faith to believe on our own. Would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.